0: Well, as we dive into the Word of God this morning, let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our Father, we humbly come before you and ask that you would please help us as we look to your Word. Father, we want to understand your mind, we want to understand your will, and we realize that we need the help of your Spirit in order to do that. So please, open the eyes of our hearts that we may see the wondrous things that are in your Word And we'll give you the praise in Christ's name. Amen. Well, folks, we live in a dark day, do we not? The forces of evil, the enemy, is constantly at work, and you simply need to open your morning newspaper, or as probably more of you do, open your news app and read of what is going on in this world, and to see uh, the darkness that is at work. Both in our country and around the world, we see evidences of the enemy of God working against all that is good in this world. We see tyrannical governments who give no freedom, no option for those who believe the gospel. And we see governments out of self-preservation go, in, go to war against their own people in which there are now millions of displaced persons around the globe. We see in our own country the hopelessness of the people living here which is manifested in the opioid crisis we see the in the name of sexual liberation uh celebration of sexual perversion and we see a Celebration of abortion in which children are killed in the womb. And we could go on for evidence of the fact that evil is not asleep in our day. And there are times that we can read the headlines and we can think about the future and it can be a dark prospect We can struggle to find hope, struggle to to say, how can we look to the future and smile? But as Christians, we cannot lose hope. Indeed, if we understand all of who God is and all that God will do, it's actually illogical for us to lose hope. And we're going to see this in our text this morning. We've been studying through the Gospel of Luke, uh, the first chapter of that book, and Luke has been showing how, from the beginning, Jesus Christ was shown to be God's Son who was sent to save humanity from sin and came to deal with the evil of this world. And as Luke sat down to begin this account, he You'd think you'd start at the birth of Jesus, but he had to even go back to the announcement of the birth of Jesus, because that showed the uniqueness of Jesus. But then he had to go back even farther to the announcement of the birth of the one who was going to be the forerunner of Jesus, and that was John the Baptist. And that's where he began at the beginning of Luke chapter 1, the the announcement of John's birth to his father in the temple showed the uniqueness of this one who was coming. And then God sent an angel to Mary who was being a virgin, that she would conceive a son by the Holy Spirit and that this son would be the son of the Most High. He would be the long-awaited-for Messiah. And the angel also told Mary that her relative Elizabeth was with child, and so at once Mary traveled to go see this one who was pregnant. And upon meeting Mary and Elizabeth, we see in the text that Elizabeth and even the son John in her womb highlight the blessing upon Mary as she is burying this special child. Luke is trying to make it abundantly clear that Jesus Christ is unlike anybody else. And therefore, we should listen to him. Well, the exclamation from Elizabeth prompted Mary to break forth into praise, into a song of exaltation, of praise to the Lord. And it's in that song that we are going to be looking this morning. So I invite you, if you haven't turned there already, to turn in your personal copy of God's Word to Luke chapter 1, starting in verse, we'll start reading in verse 46, although our focus for this morning will be in verse 46. 51 through 56. But Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 46. If you don't have your own Bible this morning, you can use one that's found in the rack directly in front of you, and you can find that on page 1017. Follow along as I read Mary's song, starting in Luke 1, verse 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Now two weeks ago, we studied the first half of this song. And we saw that there, we we saw six characteristics of God that prompted Mary's praise. That that she saw in the character of God and caused her to praise God and to break out into songs. This morning, we're going to look at the second half of Mary's song. Now, we note in verse 56, if you notice, that when the song finishes, it tells us that Mary remained with Elizabeth about three months and then returned to her home in Nazareth. Now, if you're doing the math, Mary had visited Elizabeth in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy And then here it says she remained with her about three months and then went home. And there's some debate among commentators whether she remained until John was born or whether she left right before that took place because we're right at that point. And in fact, the next uh, section is going to describe John's birth. And I don't think it matters significantly to the narrative, but I would lean towards the sequence which seems to indicate that Mary goes home and then John was born. Uh, This also seems to correlate with the fact that Mary probably didn't want to to rustle up more rumors than she already was doing, and so knowing that there were many people that were going to be coming for John's birth, she quietly exited and went back to Nazareth right before that took place. But the focus of our time this morning is to look at this song of Mary. And it's in the second half of the song that we're going to see two actions of God that we must celebrate so that we would have hope for the future. As I'm going to, we're going to see Mary is looking forward to the future and just as she can have hope for the future, so we can have hope as well. We, I know that there are two actions of God that, are, that, that come out through this text because God is the subject of every verb in verses 51 through 55. He is the one doing the action and therefore we must note what those actions are. So the first action that we must celebrate is that God will judge by His standards. God will ultimately judge by His standards. Verses 51 through 53. Now, as we saw two weeks ago, verses 46 through 50, Mary focuses in her song on God's action towards her personally. There's, a, there's words like me and I and my soul that, that, that permeate those verses as she describes and praises God for what God has done to and through her. But in verse 51, we begin to see Mary shift her reflection from herself Personally, to God's work on a broader scale. She praises God for his mercy to those who fear him from generation to generation, as she notes in verse 50. And this launches her into verses 51 through 55, in which she celebrates the incredible reversal that God will bring to humanity. A reversal in which those on top become those on the bottom, and those on the bottom get exalted to be on top. Look at verse 51. It says, He, being God, has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. And she begins by saying that He has shown strength with His arm. The strength of God is a theme that Mary has already highlighted She, in verse 49, she talked about his might and his power, the one who is mighty or the mighty one. But here, she says, he has shown strength with his arm. Now, if we know what we know about God is that God is spirit, he himself does not dwell in bodily form, and so therefore, exclamations like this are what are called anthropomorphisms in which we take a characteristic of man... And we use it to help us describe or say something about who God is. The Old Testament, you see lots of this, such as the eyes of the Lord. Well, God doesn't physically have eyes like we have eyes, but we recognize it it refers to his watchful gaze. In this case, it's the arm of the Lord. And this arm is, is used, the arm of the Lord is used throughout Scripture to describe his strength and his mighty ability. In fact, there's several places in the Old Testament where we see this arm designation used, and it typically describes God as like a divine warrior, this, this sense of a warrior who's grasping his sword and he's out to do damage, he's out to destroy his enemies, and it, and it shows his strength. For example, Deuteronomy seven verse 19 says the great trials that your eyes saw the signs the wonders the mighty hand the outstretched arm by which the lord your god brought you out so you so will the lord your god do to all the peoples of whom you are afraid speaking to the nation of israel 2 kings 17:36 but you shall fear the lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt with great power and with an outstretched arm. You shall bow yourselves to him, and to him you shall sacrifice. Or lastly, Isaiah 30, verse 30. And the Lord will cause his majestic voice to be heard, and the descending blow of his arm to be seen in furious anger, and a flame of devouring fire with a cloudburst and storm and hailstone. So you can see that there's, it's typically a described of the Exodus and him bringing his people out with an outstretched arm and destroying the enemy of Egypt. But then also even a looking forward to God's judgment in which he will there would be a descending blow of his arm as well. This mighty warrior of God. And that's what Mary celebrates and highlights here. He has shown strength with his arm. Now beginning in verse 51 through 55 the the verbs that are all throughout there the action words are are translated in the past tense he has shown strength he has scattered the proud and so on now in the greek it's not that clear cut that it's that it's necessarily describing a past action and i totally understand why the translators do it this way. You have to choose one or the other, but there's a sense in which the, the, the way these verbs are constructed, constructed, it could refer to the past. It could refer in a timeless way to kind of all of time, to saying God acts this way in all seasons, in all eras. Or it could even be looking to a future time in a, in a sort of a prophetic way. I think that what's going on here is that Mary is reflecting and meditating on the actions of God in her own life. She's also meditating upon what God has done in the past in her, old, her Bible, which is our Old Testament. And she's rejoicing in the ultimate results that her son, who is inside of her, will bring about as the promised Messiah. She recognizes that what God is doing through the son in her is in continuation of what God has been doing and will continue to do. So I would say that she's inspired by the past that she knows so well, but she is hoping in the future. And there's a sense in which what she's describing here is is somewhat prophetic of what she believes is going to take place through her son. Now, as a, as a parallel, why would she talk in kind of past tense language, but it's talking about the future? I would remind you of Romans 8.30, which God, there, Paul speaks about how God has predestined believers, He's called believers, He's justified believers, and He's glorified believers. You know, well, He, okay, I, I, I'm predestined, I'm called, I'm justified, but I'm not glorified yet. But we can see that he talks about it in kind of a past tense language form so that it's it's as certain as if it's already taken place. Our glorification is locked in just as much as our predestination was locked in before the foundation of the world. In the same way, I believe Mary here is looking at these actions of God and saying, these are going to take place. This is locked in as if it already took place. And so as we go through these verses, I will focus on how God will accomplish these things Through his son in the future. Now, as we look at verses 51 through 53, we see a contrast going back and forth between two alternating groups that are labeled differently. We see first the proud and the humble, we see the elite versus the lowly, and we see the full versus the empty. And it's in these contrasts that we really see two groups. So we shouldn't see six groups, we need to see two groups. One group stands against God and receives his condemnation, and the other is on God's side and receives his favor. And so even though Mary identifies them in different ways, she's drawing attention to the fact that God will use his strength of his arm to crush his enemies and to uplift his friends. And that's what we need to see this morning. So let's look at the different ways she describes this. First, let's look at the proud versus the humble in verses 51. At the end of verse 51. In the first contrast, Mary only mentions one side, and so we're we're to mentally fill in the other half. She says, He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. So Mary first mentions God's actions toward the proud. Now, when the scripture mentioned, Scriptures mention the proud, it refers to those who think highly of themselves and are opposed to God. And pride, as you remember, is really the fundamental sin of humanity. This is what caused Adam and Eve to think that they knew better than God. Oh, God had told me this, but I think, in my judgment, that what the serpent says is actually better, and so I'm going to go with that. And it was that pride that cast all of humanity into sin. And so every person since them, including you and I, are born proud. We don't just have a little bit of pride. We have a lot of pride. This pride was demonstrated, as you remember, at the Tower of Babel, Genesis 11, in which mankind tried to build a tower to get to God and to show their own might. And God looks down and says, nuh-uh, this is... This isn't going to be. And so God scatters them across the face of the earth. He confuses their language so that they would disperse because God had told them to fill the earth and to, and to, and to scatter across the face of the earth and they disobeyed and came together and clumped. And he says, okay, you're not obeying me. I'm going to help you. And so he, he confuses their language. They disperse across the land. And in the same way, Mary picks up somewhat of that language and says that just as God scattered the peoples across the face of the earth, God is going to scatter the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Just as every single person builds a tower of Babel in their own heart and mind, trying to think that they are above God, thinking that they know better than God, God is going to scatter them. Notice that she says, in the thoughts of their hearts. In other words, God's not just going to scatter proud actions, proud things that they do, boastful words that are said, because God can see into the innermost parts of the human heart, and so he scatters the thoughts of their hearts, those things that nobody else sees, those, those arrogant thoughts that, that run through the mind and that we think we can hide from others and we can put on a a sense of humility, but God is the one that truly sees our pride deep down. And this reality that there is coming a time in which God will scatter the thoughts of the proud should stand as a warning to everyone. God sees our hearts. God knows our pride. When it comes to God, there's No such thing as privacy settings in which you can choose what you want to share and what you don't. Because God sees it all. You can't block the sovereign eyes of the Lord from seeing what you think about. There are no proud thoughts that God will not hunt down. That's what this scattering means. It means He will chase them in all directions People thinking they can run away and hide and there's no place to hide. The proud, Mary makes the point, the proud in this life cannot expect to escape the power of the Lord. As one commentator said, God will scatter those who feel no need for Him but are proud of their spiritual or material attainments and capabilities. That, is who God has in His target. Now again, Mary is describing two great groups of people here. Those who are with God and those who are against God. Mankind, by nature, is against God and qualifies as this category of the proud. And folks, these are the people that are all around us. These are our neighbors that live next door. These are maybe our family members, our coworkers. These are people who think they can shake their fist at the sky and think there's no such thing as God and think they can get away with it. Or these are people that, that try to ignore that, that God exists and just go on with life and think they can make decisions for what they think is best and what will please them and think that God doesn't care. Or people who think that they can please Him in their own way. Whether it's a certain religion that they choose or some self-defined spiritual path. That they can come to God on their own terms. All of these positions reflect a heart of pride that God will one day scatter. A pride that God will deal with when His Son returns to crush His enemies. You see, for Mary, she knows that Jesus was the Messiah and that he would bring righteousness to the land. So she knows that Jesus is going to conquer in some sort of way and bring about about God's holiness and righteousness, but she does not yet see that before that great victory comes, there has to be a great humiliation in the life of Jesus. The cross must come before the crown. The sufferings before the glory. But she celebrates that glory that is going to come and we know is still coming. And so this is a sobering reminder for all of us, even though even those of us that know Christ and that we are God's friend because of that, we must continue to seek to kill the pride that is in our hearts. Because that displeases the Lord. First Peter chapter 5, verses 5 through 6 says clothe yourselves all of you with humility toward one another why for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so at the proper time he may exalt you that's the flip side of the proud the proud are scattered the humble are exalted we humble ourselves now under the mighty hand of God so that we don't get scattered by the mighty arm of God later. So this is the, the first contrast that Mary celebrates about the future, is that all those who are proud in this world and in this life will reap what is coming to them at the hand of the, of the Lord. He will scatter the thoughts of the proud. The second contrast Mary celebrates and rejoices in is the elite versus the lowly in verse 52. Look at it with me. He says, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Here she notes that God's strength is seen in his bringing down the mighty from their thrones and exalting those of humble estate. Now I think Here, which is translated in the ESV as the mighty, I think the NASB and the NIV have the better translation here, which is rulers. Because although it could be translated mighty, there is a reference to their thrones that comes later in that phrase, and therefore we're talking about rulers. We're talking about those who have some sort of authority, And Mary notes that God will cast these rulers down. The powerful elite of this world think that they are invincible. They pride themselves in their ability to protect their own interests. Through money and power and influence, they do all they can to serve themselves. And this usually means oppressing those who have no money and have no power. In Mary's day, this was the Romans and the hypocritical religious leaders who ruled simply to serve themselves. And it's these disadvantaged, these who've been oppressed under these these selfish rulers that Mary then notes are of humble estate. In other words, this contrast of those prideful, powerful rulers that are oppressing those who are down here and of humble estate. And in the end, God is going to flip everything on its head. He's going to reverse the fortunes of these groups of people. Now, the humble estate that's spoken of here is not so much their humble attitude in contrast to the proud, although that is certainly implied, but it's more highlighting their estate or their status, that they are lowly, they're at the bottom. But it's not just poor people, or not just lowly people, but it's godly lowly people. It's those who fear him, as she noted in verse 50. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. And so again, through this song, Mary is highlighting the proud and those opposed to God and the humble and those who are on God's side. And so the humblest state here are those who are on God's side and fear him, that he will exalt. And what she's noting here is that God will have the final say. His power will be displayed as he reverses the fortunes of these people. God will judge the ruling classes for their oppression and their lack of compassion. Why? Because God requires that man treat their fellow man with compassion. That is what is built into his creation of mankind. That we are made in God's image, Genesis chapter 1. Therefore, we would treat others as God would treat them because we image God. And yet, and we see that command right through the, the, the scriptures, love your neighbor as yourself. And yet, that's not what's taking place for these proud rulers. So what does this mean for us? What does Mary's hope and Mary's declaration of what's going to happen in the future mean for us today? Well, because we continue to live in a fallen world as we've already reflected on, there are unrighteous and wicked rulers who oppose God and oppress God's people even today. And while here in the U.S. we certainly maybe sensing a greater amount of opposition to Christ and His gospel than we have in prior generations. It's really the church around the world that has and still does receive far more persecution than we do. And it just so happens that today is recognized as the International Day of Prayer for the persecuted church. And here in our text, we are reminded that followers of God are often targets of oppression by those who rule over them. And so this hope and this reversal that Mary highlights is very much appropriate for us, for the church in the 21st century. I mean, just reflect upon the brutal regime in North Korea, or the tyrannical Communist Party in China, or to the Muslim-majority nations in the Middle East. In all these places, followers of Jesus experience injustice and persecution at the hands of the rulers, those who are mighty who sit on thrones, self-appointed thrones. But what Mary says here is hope for them and is hope for us today. That there is a change coming. God has not forgotten his children. He never will. He will not allow the wicked to go unpunished. Jesus Christ will return to deal with his enemies, and he is the mightiest one. I'm reminded of Revelation 19. In fact, I invite you to turn there. Revelation 19 this is a passage that describes the coming of Jesus. This is also a helpful reminder as we approach the Christmas season in which Jesus is too often portrayed as meek and mild as this uh, soft, gentle uh, baby and then this kind of man that just wants to love everybody, which is true. Jesus loves everybody deeply, but, and he says, Come to me, all you who are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He is a gentle Savior. But while it looked in his first coming that the enemy had gotten the best of him, when he comes back again, no one's going to doubt who wins. Revelation 19, verse 11 King of kings and Lord of lords. Again, there will be no dispute about who wins that war. It will be a ruthless slaughter of all of God's enemies that will be done with perfect justice. No injustice. No one will receive punishment that did not deserve it. Because mankind is naturally. Proud and opposed to God, and God will one day bring justice. But not only will the enemies of God be cast down, but believers will be exalted, will be lifted to a highest state. We'll be able to reign with Christ. We get to sit upon the throne. Since we're in Revelation, turn to Revelation 3. Three, verse 21 one of the promises to the church says the one who conquers I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne we get to sit with Christ upon His throne. 2 Timothy 2.12 says, if we we endure, we will reign with Him. This is the promise for us as believers that we get to be exalted and be the place of ruling authority with Christ. So believer, you await a day of exaltation in which you will be freed from sin, and you will be given a place of honor with the Lord, we must set our hope upon that. Our hope is not found in maybe change of fortunes in this life, but we know that in the final day, the fortunes will be reversed. And that we will receive all that is promised to us through Christ. So we celebrate with Mary that God will one day judge everyone by His standards Everyone will receive what they are due, the wicked their destruction, and those who believe the God-fearers are exaltation. But Mary isn't done. She has one more contrast to make in verse 53, so turn back with me to Luke chapter 1 verse 53. She contrasts the full versus the empty. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich He has sent away empty. The poor and the rich, a classic contrast. The rich in this life seem to have it all. They're full of possessions, they're full of food, they're full of whatever they want. But the poor, on the other hand, are deprived of many things. And Mary rejoices in the fact that through the Messiah, the Son in her womb, God will fulfill the desires of the hungry and send away the rich empty. Now these statements are not solely physical and not solely spiritual. They include both spiritual and physical blessings that come to those who fear the Lord. Mary delights that the righteous will one day have all their desires fulfilled. In the kingdom of Christ there will be Food abundant to feast upon. Now, biblically, the rich are those who rely upon their own riches and operate independently of God. So, yes, it is those who have lots of money and lots of possessions, but typically the rich is designated as those who are independently rich and and think they have no need of God. And we see this later on in the book of Luke, in Luke 16, where we have Lazarus, the poor Lazarus, the poor man who's lying at the gate of the rich man. And they both die and they go to heaven and hell. The scene changes to the afterlife. And the, the poor man, Lazarus, who is begging at the gate, is transferred to heaven, and the rich man who had no time to acknowledge Lazarus is sent to Hades. Their fortunes are reversed. And so it will be for all humanity. Riches by themselves are not inherently evil or bad, but the Bible is clear that there's great dangers with wealth. And that as we accumulate, we can become independent or think that we are. And folks, we can always point to people that are more wealthy than us, but we live in one of the most prosperous nations in the history of the world. And I believe that affluence and Abundance is a temptation that's ever at hand for us today. Poverty on its own hand can cause someone to cry out to God because they have no recourse which to turn. But we who have some money in the bank to turn to when things happen, we can tend to forget to cry out to God for our daily bread. We can forget to Remember that it all comes from Him. And the moment that we stop walking in grateful dependence is the moment we can fall into the wealth trap. And so we must use our abundance with generosity, for that is what God calls us to. But we can be thankful that in that final day, all the desires that are left unfulfilled in this life will be fulfilled. The emptiness of our hearts, the emptiness of our our desires will be fulfilled. And so God's people can look forward to all the good things that God is going to give us in the next life. And so the point of these contrasts is that in the end, God will judge each person according to His standards. No matter how it may look in this life, God is the one that ultimately judges. People do not get to set the criteria for who is blessed and who is condemned. God sets that criteria. He will look at how people lived in this life. Did they fear him? Did they trust him? Did they love those around them? And this is our hope. We know the end of the story. We know that while the world may hate Christ and hate us, hate us we are on the winning side of history. And this is because we know the winner and it is his standard that will dictate in the end. Amen? So believer, take heart this morning. You know the end of the story. Through Jesus, this world will be flipped on its head. He will have the last laugh. All the wrong will be made right. The righteous will be rewarded. And God will have the victory. And in this, we have hope. So the first action of God that we can celebrate from this text is that God will judge by his standards. God will judge by his standards and therefore set the record straight. With everyone, But the second action that we see in this text that we need to celebrate to give us hope for the future is that, number two, God will keep His promises. God will keep His promises. And we see this in verses 54 and 55. Mary finishes her song by highlighting God's commitment to Israel. Let's see this in verses 54 and 55. He, being God, has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Mary recognizes that the coming of the Messiah means that God is helping his people, Israel. And this is a very nationalistic sense. We cannot take the word Israel here to mean the church. We certainly will be included. In the blessings that come to us through the new covenant. But we cannot change the meaning of what is being said here. Israel here is identified as God's servant. This communicates not only Israel's submission to God, but also its privileged status as God's representative on earth. The word for help here, God has, he has helped his servant Israel, means to lay hold of in order to support this sense of someone collapsing and and coming up from behind and and holding them up so they support them and they continue to stand. This help of collapsing Israel will come through Israel's redemption and salvation through the Messiah. Now there's a sense in which she's probably looking for a political deliverer in some sense, that that this Messiah is going to come and clean house, as we've already seen in the contrast that she's made. Right? The, the Messiah is going to start flipping things in this world. And so she's thinking he, he's going to start doing some things so that Israel once again receives prominence upon this earth. But what she doesn't necessarily understand in the fullest is the way in which he is going to be a savior, and a savior that requires that he go to the cross in order to become that savior. That the the help of Israel will come through the death of her son as much as through a future reign of her son. Now, on top of the fact of God's help, Mary emphasizes the cause of God's help. Why does God help Israel? What does it say in the text? It says, Because he remembered his mercy. He He has helped Israel here through Jesus because he remembered his mercy. This is the word hesed, meaning the, the covenant loyal love of God in which he has, he has placed his love upon his people, and it's steadfast, and it's faithful, and it's never going to let go. It's a love that he promised to Abraham, which is what Mary rejoices in here. He looks, she looks back and realizes that this, this promise was given to Abraham back in Genesis, and now through the centuries, God is fulfilling that promise. This was a promise given roughly 2,000 years before Mary. So the distance from us to Jesus is the distance from Mary to Abraham. I know our Bible is a lot more compact than that, and we can kind of forget those span of years. But Mary is clinging to that promise 2,000 years after it was given, just like we cling to the promises 2,000 years after they were written. She clings to what God has made, that he keeps his promises, that he remembers his mercy, he will not forget. And once again, as we see, Mary is drawn to meditate upon the character of God. As we saw earlier in this song, she's captivated by who God is and all that is bubbling out of his character. And here it's his mercy again that she returns to. And in verse 55, she notes his faithfulness. His faithfulness Through the centuries. Now she doesn't know when this ultimate salvation of Israel is going to take place. And we know it's going to take place in a future time when Israel is saved and restored in the end times. But Mary didn't know that. She just knew that it was through the Son in her womb that this was going to take place. And she's praising God and has hope for the future because the Messiah has come. And therefore he has remembered his love To Israel. Well, we can say that's great for Israel, but what about us? We're not Jews. How can we celebrate in what Mary's saying today? Well, just like Jesus is Israel's Savior, so Jesus is our Savior too, is He not? And we are able to be blessed through Jesus. This is Paul's point in Galatians 3, verses 7 through 9, who said, Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. We can rejoice that God gave a promise to Abraham, and through that promise includes the blessing of the nations. And we just so happen to be a part of the nations. So therefore, we receive the blessing that comes through Jesus. It's through our faith in the Jewish Messiah that we are blessed with salvation. We've been grafted in. As we know, Israel rejected their Messiah and have temporarily been hardened And we Gentiles are partakers of the new covenant through Jesus. And so therefore, we are given forgiveness. We're given a new heart. We're given the Holy Spirit. And so we partake in this redemption. And so we too await a future day of salvation. We await our complete salvation when our bodies will be redeemed and sin and suffering and pain will be no more when we'll be free from sin, when that, that battle with the flesh that rages in our hearts every single day will be done away with. And when we will finally see Jesus face to face, it will be a day in which death and pain and grief are absent. It will be a day in which we will be fully satisfied in the Lord and we, we won't have any longings for that which is evil or that which is wrong. How do we know that these beautiful realities will be ours? How can you go home confident that these will be yours one day? Because God has spoken it in his word. He's promised it, and he is faithful. Just as he kept his promises to Israel, he keeps his promises to us, believer. In fact, if God did not keep his promises to Israel, we would have every reason to doubt whether he would keep his promise with us, which is the whole point of Romans 9 through 11, by the way. God is a promise-keeping God. And so we cannot lose sight of our blessed hope, the return of Christ, and all that he will bring with him. Because when we lose sight of the future and that hope that we have, we lose lose our track spiritually in the here and now. If we stop hoping in the return of Christ, then we can lose our impetus for holiness. Why be holy? Why fight fight against sin and fight for holiness in our life if we forget that Jesus is coming back, if we fail to set our hope on Christ's ultimate victory, we can grow demoralized in our sin-saturated world and have a defeatist attitude. If we fail to hope in God's promises of our final redemption, then we grow discouraged with the sin in our own lives to the point of hopelessness. But we've got to remember what is coming. This is not the end. God is still at work. He will right every wrong. He will fulfill his promises. And hoping for what is to come comes part and parcel with what it means to be a Christian. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 8. He says, For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Beloved, we need to wait and we need to wait with patience, setting our eyes on what God will do and in that, know that we have hope for the future. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our Father, we thank you for all that you are doing in and through us. We thank you that we can have hope in what you will do. And we are reminded of our brothers and sisters around the world who currently are under oppression and persecution for their faith in Christ. Father, our hearts ache with them, that they long for the day in which they will be redeemed and their captors will be punished. We pray until that day that you would keep them faithful, that you would keep their eyes set upon the hope of the future when Jesus will return. And may they be faithful witnesses for Christ, as us as well, that those around us, whether they be our captors or they be our friends and neighbors, that they might know the hope that we have and the reason for our hope. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.